Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 39 in the Old Testament. And last Sunday, the message was titled, Who Are You Going to Trust? And that was part one. And today we're going to go into part two. And basically, the first time we were in actually chapter 40, today we're going to be in 39 and 40, uh, 39 and 41, excuse me. But what we saw last time was God revealing his love, his character, his qualities, uh, and this is what God often does. He does many different things to win people to him. He wants the whole world to be saved. The Bible says that. Uh, but he gave us free will. So some people are just prodigals. They're in rebellion. Unfortunately, some stay that way until they, they pass away, which is really sad. If you didn't get last Sunday's message, we're video uh, recording. So it's up on the web. And there was a really good aside about physics about God's truths, about the cosmos, about the earth, and how the earth is round and spherical and thousands of years before uh, modern technology, and how would anybody know that? Of course, God created everything. So I talk about angular momentum and precession and axis of symmetry and all that kind of really neat stuff. So I encourage you to get it, especially if you're trying to build your faith, build your belief, and you're being maybe attacked verbally by those that don't believe in God. Um, and don't believe there's science in the Bible. It's actually not true. So this uh, Sunday, God's going to take a little bit of a different approach in chapter 41. He's going to take a little bit of a, what I would call a polemical attack, a, a harsh attack on false idols, on false things that people trust in, especially for their salvation. So the first time the, in, in part one was more you know, the, his love and his character. And this one's more uh, really an attack on things that don't save, which makes a lot of sense. And I'll talk about that as well. We're going to see this in four parts. Uh, we're going to see that he goes kind of like a courtroom style. So if any of you have been in the legal profession or the juris, in ju any type of jurisprudence, you'll find it interesting how he kind of goes through this methodically, how he reasons with the uh, rebellious world and why they should come to him. So let's jump in and chapter 39. So at that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them, and he showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and where did they come? Where did they come to you? Or from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, 
whom you will beget. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is, is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now there's a parallel if you've, you're here on Wednesday nights. Uh, this is also covered in Wednesday nights. But uh, I had to kind of juxtapose the, uh, the chapters because uh, we were in some long chapters and to put this in there would have made it, we would have been here for a long time. So I found a shorter chapter to kind of put 39 with, but rest assured, it's in chronological order. So the, the setting, or one out of four, is that pride trusts self. Pride trusts self. Now, we know that King Hezekiah of Jerusalem was sick. Uh, he was dying. He repented. He prayed to the Lord. The Lord gave him 15 more years. So that was a miracle. But there was another miracle that happened in actual the nation of, of Judah, right, uh, the, in Jerusalem. The Assyrians were poised to basically get in, siege warfare. There was no doubt about their power, but God wiped out a, a large part of their army, and they were very cruel and very brutal. And after that part of the army was wiped out, they couldn't attack Jerusalem anymore. So there was two miracles that happened. One, the man, Hezekiah, and one, the city of Jerusalem. So Hezekiah is, is well. The Babylonians hear of it. Right? You can find copies of the different Old Testament, New Testament scriptures in other nations and other cultures. God's word spread far and wide. So Babylon responds to send presents. He sends teddy bears and chocolates and roses to Hezekiah. Well, not quite, but Hezekiah is flattered and he does something stupid. Just to, again, I, I have to put history in as a filler because you read it and you go, well, where'd you get that from? So when you study history and you study other parts of the scripture, you can see all this fills in into this contextual situation. So Assyria is on the decline, right? If you follow your world kingdoms uh, over the years, ancient kingdoms. Babylon is on the increase. Nobody really knows this but God, and we'll see that. Uh, So Babylon is trying to, since Jerusalem thwarts Assyria, they're trying to make a little bit of a, an alliance with Judah, Jerusalem, against Assyria, sealing their fate. So they have that going on. Unfortunately, <laughs> they see everything that Hezekiah shows them. They report it back. The envoys go back to Babylon. They remember this for a long time. They write it down. And you wonder why it took 15 or so years for Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to 586 B.C. to actually invade and get into Jerusalem because they never forgot all the stuff that was in Jerusalem. Now, when you're waging war, whether you're the United States or an ancient kingdom, you need money. So what these kingdoms would do is they would raid the places that they uh, invaded and they take their money to continue to finance their wars and their weapons and all that kind of thing. So this is what's going on. So let's talk about spiritual because, listen, we're, we're not here for history lesson, obviously. But here's the deal that it's sad that these foreigners come to Jerusalem. Hezekiah knows the true God. The true God healed him. And he doesn't use it as an opportunity to witness to the Babylonians. That's a tragedy. He starts to get caught up in these human emotions and feelings, and he forgets who he is. Thankfully, Isaiah never did. And he came and he rebuked them. And he could have lost his head for that, but these prophets were bold. They didn't play around. So what... Satan couldn't get Hezekiah with, get in like a Trojan horse with trial. He was able to get in with a temptation. 
And you know what? The devil does that with us too. Some of us are really good fighting off temptations, but we fall apart when there's a trial or the reverse. And this is his methodology to get us to fall and to get us to fail. Thankfully, God forgives. The Bible does record all in all that Hezekiah was a good man, but he did have an Achilles heel when it came to pride. And I say I look at pride as the beast where all other sins kind of emanate from. And the tentacles of that beast, unfortunately, was succumbing to flattery and also being a braggart. So what is pride? Pride is, and pride trusts self, like that's one out of one. Pride is something where we start to trust in ourselves. You know, we start to believe our own propaganda, we're so great, our accomplishments, and we, we get really, a, it's a confusion. And it's, it's, the Bible says pride goes before destruction. When you're a proud person, then you succumb to flattery. Flattery is not a good thing. It's usually somebody trying to tell you what they think you want to hear to get something out of you. Okay? But when you're full of pride, any flattery will get you off your game. See, it's this delusion that starts to take place. And then, of course, bragging. Uh, look at me. Look what I have. Look what I've accomplished. You know, even 1 John 2 says that, speaks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The first two are pretty easy to understand. But you really have to go deep into the Scripture to understand the pride of life. That is that attitude of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. You're seeking something from the outside. The pride of life is you want somebody to look at you and be jealous and envious. So it's kind of like a reversal. The, the Scripture has, it just has wisdom for everything. So, the tragedy is that Hezekiah, he doesn't use this as a witnessing opportunity. And the other tragedy is the Babylonians find out about two major miracles and all they care about is world domination. Now, I know folks, and maybe that was me before I was saved, you could see a literal miracle, but you're still just focused on the material world. You don't make that leap into spiritual things. And unfortunately, that's what's going on here. This was a mutual admiration society between King Hezekiah and the Babylonian envoys. Well, you're great. Oh, no, no, you're great. Oh, look, at you're really wonderful. And people are forgetting they're man-pleasers and they're not being God-pleasers. So something's majorly missing here. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I covered this extensively in 2 Kings 20, and you can get that online. But suffice it to say that Isaiah the prophet rebukes him. Now, is this the only reason why over 100 years later the Babylonians invade Jerusalem and get through? No, there was a lot of other reasons. The nation goes decadent again. It goes wicked. It turns its back on the living God, and he removes his protective hand. But suffice it to say that if I could fill in here and there, they never forgot how much gold and silver and wealth was in Jerusalem at the time, especially in the temple. Um, sadly enough, it almost seems like Hezekiah is selfish. <laughs> he's kind of almost relieved that, well, it's not going to happen in my day. I mean, if the prophet said to me, you're going to die in peace, but your son's going to have a real struggle in life because of something you did, I'd feel really bad about that. Um, so that's what you have. And, and on this last section, or this, this last part of the section, is that when we don't fully trust the Lord, and when we start trusting in ourselves, as believers, it opens us up to all types of problems. So hopefully as Hezekiah could be a good lesson to us in what not to do. So we continue. We jump with me to chapter 41. Now something's happening here. Uh, so we started in the 39 was the roughly 701 B.C. area. Assyria is repelled. Assyria is on the down. 
on the decline, uh, Babylon rises. Babylon uh, was able to conquer Assyria and everybody else. Uh, they eventually, again, under Nebuchadnezzar, get into Jerusalem. They expatriate the people. They're uh, pretty much made captives in the land of Babylon. And this hasn't happened yet, but Isaiah is predicting the future. Now, as a Christian, you might say, well, you know, in Revelation it says this is going to happen in the rise of the Antichrist, and people might think you're a kook. And they probably thought that some of the people thought that Isaiah was a kook, but everything he said came to pass. And when we look at the world stage, especially in post-Christian Europe, you can see this desire for this one world leader. So what they might have made fun of you about 30 years ago is actually starting to come to pass now. They want to merge the militaries, the banking systems, the government. They want to clamp down and pretty much say, listen, the problem with Europe is that we're not united enough. That's code words for globalism. Globalism is going to set the stage for this world leader. So I'll take the, ins the insults. I'm going to go with what the Bible says because it's always right. Okay, so Isaiah is now prophesying not only the captivity in Babylon, which the people are like, what are you kidding me? Babylon's nothing. But then the, the Persian Empire rising up and then conquering Babylon and then freeing the Jewish people and sending them back to Jerusalem, which is actually very encouraging, especially if you're in captivity. So if we continue on, chapter 41, because there's a, there's a fundamental change in methodology between chapter 39 and chapter 40, and we're going to see that. So he says, Keep silence before me, this is God speaking, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength, and let them come near, and let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Referring to Cyrus, the great Persia. Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him? And who made him ruler over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands saw and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. This is interesting, how they would make their little gods, their little idols, and worship them. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter or fall over so two out of four is that God reasons, God reasons with the pagan world, right? He's going to speak to his people, but before that, it's almost like he's calling high court. When he speaks of the coastlands, uh, you, at the time, again, we become very Euro-centered or Ameri-centered, and we forget that everything happened in the Middle East. This is where everything happened. Right? The big things that affect us today, right? the Babylon, the Jerusalem, you know, um, the Messiah. Right? So this is all important stuff. So God speaking to the coastlands or the Isle nations were considered the ends of the earth at the time. And if you look at the, a map of the Middle East, you can see this broad swath of land and then oceans that is you know, on either side very far away. So... He looks at this and he's asking the nations, 
did, did you see what was coming? Because the nations, when Cyrus is raised up and he starts conquering, everybody's caught by surprise. They're caught flat-footed. So the six who's, God is speaking about himself, right? Who raised up this one from the east? Now, here's the funny thing about Cyrus the Persian. He's kind of a beneficent fellow. When we look at world history and we look at, I guess if you have to conquer the world or if that's your thing to do, you have to be aggressive. You have to be callous. Is, you know, I don't know. I'm not looking to conquer the world. But when you look at history, there were some very aggressive people who conquered the world. When you look at history, even his enemies said things about him that he was fair. Cyrus the Persian, Cyrus the Great. Okay, So he did conquer. He did make war. But he wasn't like the other ones. God raises him up to do this, this job to put down the Babylonians and their wickedness. So he's, he's speaking, who allowed this to happen? Did you see it happening? No, nobody saw it. Because as God, he knows the end from the beginning. And unless he reveals his revelation to us, we're not going to know that. It's the mind of God. If we could put up, put up the first image of the map, this is interesting because in verse 2, it says... Who raised up one from the east? And in verse 25, he says, I have raised up one from the north. Because of the the culture that we're in, because of the geographical area that we're in, and because we're a community church and people come and go, I always look for the supposed discrepancies of the Bible and I address them. Because that's part of what I do. It's called apologetics. So if we look at the known world at the time, uh, Isaiah's down here in Jerusalem, and he's speaking about this future occurrence. Babylon at the time that he's speaking is really nothing, and Assyria up here is really still the world power. So Assyria is going to give way to Babylon. Babylon's going to give way to the Medo-Persians. And Cyrus the Great is from, he's a Persian, which is actually modern-day Iran, which for many years until the Islamic Revolution was a country that was very favorable towards Jews and Christians. A lot has changed since 1979, as you can tell from watching the news. But so Isaiah's here. If you find, follow the lines of latitude, due east is Persia. Okay, well, Pastor Joe, what about coming from the north? Let me get to that. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so when the Medo-Persians conquered, they had to go in this direction, sort of like a a northwest. And then to conquer these nations, they would have to go southwest. What's the reason? Because here is the Syrian desert. It's a wasteland. So from a perspective, yes, they're due east, but they would come from the north. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That's the beauty of the Scripture. Uh, People can look at it, take a quick... That's why you have to meditate on God's Word. What was he talking about? Do a little research. Check it out. Um, because at first glance, the people who are against, antagonistic towards God will make these ridiculous arguments, and they're very easily explained. So we start to get into a branch of apologetics called Christology. God says, the Father, I am the first and the last. I always was, I will always be. His name, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav in the Hebrew means the one who always was and the one who will always be. It's a very dynamic phrase that he names himself. We have simple names. He has a name that's incredibly dynamic. He's the first and the last. Jesus picks this up, Revelation 1.17, 
and Revelation 22:13. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. We have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem. If Jesus is not God, then he's blaspheming. Now, if I came up here seriously and said, I'm God this morning, hopefully nobody would come back next Sunday, <laughs> except the people that didn't hear it. Uh, but I would never do that because it's blasphemy. Jesus says all the things that the Father said. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses have a problem with this, and they struggle. And I've talked to elders and church leaders, and they, they get tangled up in this uh, because they don't believe that Jesus was God. So they have to defect or default to Jesus being another God, which makes you now a polytheist or a lesser God. Interesting. If they come to your house, bring that up to them. Ask them how the Father can say it repeatedly through Isaiah, but Jesus could repeat it. And how is that not blasphemy if he's not fully God and fully man? Interesting concept. But the first and the last, what basically God is saying is, I mean, what do we do on earth, right? You, you did something this weekend. You probably saw people, unless you're completely reclusive. <laughs> uh, you'll probably see people this week, right? We focus on human beings. God puts everything in perspective and says, I was before everything, and I'm going to be after everything. So mankind is kind of taken out of focus with this term. This term does a lot of things. Also, uh, in verse 4, another translation of this is it says, the God who has directed the affairs of generation, generations. So when God is, is pressing these people and saying, you were caught, caught flat-footed with the Persians, but I wasn't, the Bible tells us that God is intimately concerned in the affairs of people. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. Because we can go through the history and we can prove that the Bible is right, but we can miss the applications. So I like the history, I like the geography, but the, at the end of the day, when you leave this place, what are you going to take home with you? You should take home that God is intimately concerned about the affairs of your life. And especially if you're in a crowd, if you went somewhere on Saturday night and it was all these people, you almost feel insignificant. But God knows you. He saw what you did. He knows your heart. He knows what you were thinking. He knows your concerns. So keep that in mind. He is a personal God. Yes, he can look at the big picture, but he can also zoom in on the individual. It's important to understand. So in verse 7, I find this humorous. Uh, it speaks about the craftsman and the goldsmith and the anvil worker uh, making these little gods. In other words, here comes Cyrus. Let's make this god to protect ourselves. And that's what they did. Sometimes they would look at their neighbor who had a different culture. Well, they have the fish god. They seem to be having good luck. Well, maybe we'll worship the fish god. And this is what people did. They would fashion these weird, freakish, part animal, part human, because they don't know what God looks like. And they would make a representation. But the funny thing is at the end, and God has a great sense of humor, he said it's ready for the soldering then he fastened it with pegs so it doesn't totter. Make sure your little false god that you make doesn't fall over. You know what I'm saying? So, oh, look at my god. Huh? Don't walk too, too quickly. My god might tip over. He's a little unbalanced. So, folks, that's not the god that we want to follow. We want to follow the true god. And this is the, tr the truth. When people are, are introduced with the awe of God... Some are driven into his arms and others rebel and fight more. And this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, which one are you? Are you driven into the arms of God? The more you learn about him, the more you learn about his character, his love, his promises, or are you 
slowly having your heart hardened against him. And that's a picture of the whole world. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who's Republican and who's Democrat. It doesn't matter who's on the coast and who's in the Midwest. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what matters is, do you know the Lord or do you not know the Lord? Because our lives are a vapor, right? They're nothing. We're going to spend all of eternity in one place or the other. And God, again, started with his character, and now he's moving towards attacking things that we should not put our trust in. They're rubber crutches. They're false. So we look at this. And then the other question is, are we God-focused or object-focused? Think about this. Even as believers, believers can get caught into being in one or two category. If they're God-focused, then he's the priority and everything else takes a turn. It's prioritized. If we're object-focused, then guess what? That object it could be my playtime, it could be my career, it could be you know, all of my achievements, it could be my relationships. I mean, we can go on and on. It could be summertime. That can be the object. And guess where God is? He's somewhere down in the pecking order. And then we, we start to have problems, right? God's not going to take second place. So we're either object-focused or we're God-focused. Now, God, again, he's reasoning through this timeline of history, through kingdoms rising and falling, he's reasoning, it's cool, not only with his people, but with the pagans and the foreigners. Again, people have a lot of misconceptions about the Bible. Well, God loved his chosen people, but he hated everybody else. That is not reflected at all in Scripture. Was it Obadiah, the prophet, went to Edom? Jonah went to Nineveh? He kept sending his prophets out. That wasn't a fun job, by the way. To a lot of these pagan nations, some of them were bloodthirsty, and they would empower, thus says the Lord, and some of these people repented, and they became believers. So God loves everybody, but not everybody loves God. Not everybody is going to come to him at the end. We have to get our focus proper when we study the Bible. And it goes to show, too, that people can look at the same event and come to two different conclusions. We see that all the time in our culture. And they fight about it. You know, there's a video and you see all these just uh, very divergent opinions on one video that everybody saw, right? Some saw Cyrus as a liberator. Well, the Jews did. They got to leave Babylon. And others saw him as an oppressor. People do the same thing with God. Some, some see God as an angry God and I, I would not even consider getting close to him. And, and some, they find out God's truths and they're just drawn to him. I want to know him. And the latter is obviously the better. Continuing on, the the third part, verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, you're my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and you have not, and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them. And not find them. Those who contend with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing. This is, again, 
as Christians, we read promises of God, and sometimes we're going through a really deep trial, and with in, in our flesh, in our feelings, we tend to fight with what we read because we're going through something, as if God doesn't love us when we go through something, as if he's doing something to us. This, this life is filled with pitfalls. It really is. The best is yet to come. It isn't here. So there, he, he's, he's recounting the, how the nation started. Again, reading this in captivity, they might think, how, how are we going to get out of this situation? Let's continue. There shall be as, no, as nothing as a non-existent thing, for I, that's who's going to do it, the Lord your God will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. I'm going to get back to that. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongues fail for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. He's talking about doing this in the desert. Then they shall see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So three out of four is God comforts His people with three metaphors that we're going to look at. Three metaphors. So the first one is, verse 8, is the servant. Now there were two servants in this chapter. We talked about Cyrus. Cyrus was raised up to find favor with the Jewish people and let them go, right? Sounds familiar, Exodus. But he was a good leader and he sent them back to their homeland with supplies. He also speaks of Jacob and Abraham, who were also his servants. Now, we just celebrated the 4th of July. What did we celebrate? Freedom, right? So when we hear some terms in the Bible, it's a culture clash. The Apostle Paul said he, was, he went one further. He said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I'll do anything for Jesus. He knew what he was delivered from. And for some, again, that grates on them the wrong way, but we are called as followers to be his servants. He's our leader, right? He leads, we follow. You know, some serve the Lord only when it's convenient. Some don't serve the Lord at all. They serve themselves. But we're called to be servants. Verse 10, he says, fear not, do not be dismayed. When we look at the New Testament, how many times did Jesus speak about not worrying? Not worrying. First of all, and I love the way Jesus used logic. He said, first of all, it's not going to change anything. Your worry is not going to get you any taller. It's not going to get you more hair on your head. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it don't even bother doing that. But secondly is, I got you. You know, I, I have you. I see everything that's going on. You know, talk to me. Let's, let's, let me help you with this. 11 through 13, he speaks about those that would come against Israel later on and also through the millennia in the millennial kingdom. 
So this is a promise to Israel, right? That those that come, and we see that today. We actually saw that since 1948, don't we? When Israel regathered into the land that was rightfully hers, and the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, all these wars of these nations that wanted to destroy her while she was still young. And boy, that's a promise that really came to pass. With all their militaries, they surrounded them on, on, on every side. It was a sliver of land that they had to defend. And they were successful. Pretty amazing stuff. So, you know, God doesn't lie. And it's a very unusual thing for her to be able to repel all the forces that have come against her in even modern times. The second metaphor, verse 14 through 16, is Jacob as a worm. Well, that's not very flattering, is it? <laughs> But they would understand that. They, how do I say this to, in modern terminology? They, they had sort of like a Stockholm Syndrome type of mentality where they were captives. They started identifying with their captors. Uh, many of them were very strong. They still celebrated the Passover. They were faithful to God. Others went along with Babylonian culture because they took the mentality of those that were oppressing them. So God is trying to shake them out of this and say, listen, I'm ready. We're ready to go. Pack your bags Cyrus is going to send you back, you know, practice your walking and your climbing because you're going to be going back home. So it's pretty neat. He's like, basically, you guys look at yourself and the world looks at you as a worm, but you're going to turn into a threshing sledge, able to change the topography of mountains and forests. Again, metaphors are great. doesn't matter if you have high education or low education, you can understand the metaphor, right? Simile, it's a, it's a parallel, it's a type, picture. And on and on and on. It's good stuff. Um, in 14, and he sprinkles this all the way throughout the Old Testament. He, he, your God and your Redeemer. Now check this out. God redeemed the, the people physically um, when they were slaves in Egypt. Right? He, he bought them back. He was able to physically get them out of Egypt. When they were slaves and servants in Babylon, he redeemed them as well. Uh, he rises this, raises this one leader up who actually reads the Scripture and finds out that his actual name is in Isaiah 100 plus years before the guy was even born, and that he would rise up. Could you imagine if you're a conqueror and you, you're just conquering people, you're tottering their false gods, you run into a group of people and they show you their scroll and you read it and you go, how's my name in here? How old is this thing? You know, I, I just kind of started conquering the world. You know, this, is, this is pretty impressive. And he finds favor upon the Jews. So you, you think you're a worm, uh, but you're going to be a threshing sledge. And secondly, or most importantly, I'm your redeemer. Now here's the cool thing. Jewish people, again, out of Egypt, out of Babylon, what did Jesus do? He came to redeem us from our sins. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, i got news for you. You are a slave. You're a slave to self. You're a slave to your own sinful desires. You're in the slave market spiritually of sin. What Jesus did, and this is why the leaders, the Jewish leaders, had a problem at the time because they're like, well, you're going to do what all the other uh, conquerors that God sent us, right? The judges like Samson and all those guys? Nope. I'm going to die for your sins. Yeah, but we don't want that. We don't want to be under the, the Roman yoke. God's timing. Stop trying to tell God what to do. So when Jesus died for our sins, he redeemed us as well. Something you couldn't see. Yet, it was so much more powerful than anything and anyone in any captivity situation. So, God is our Redeemer. He sent Christ to redeem us from sin. And the third metaphor is this oasis in the desert. I've never been to 
a desert. <laughs> I've been on some really hot beaches where you can't walk on the sand. Uh, if any of you have been to a desert and checked it out, or uh, it, it's probably rough. It's hot. It's you know, it, it saps you. You sweat. You, you're thirsty. So this picture was something they would definitely understand. What do you mean? You know, figuratively, metaphorically. In addition, it's not just a metaphor, but when uh, the Israelites came back in 1948, God is doing a lush thing in Israel. You know, Israel is a major exporter of flowers and vegetables and fruit. God has done incredible, and people are like, how's that little thing? People who hate, who are anti-Semitic or they're anti-Israel, it, it really bugs them that that little thing on the, on the, that little freckle on the picture of the Middle East is so lush that they, they have natural gas reserves. They have oil. It's just incredible what they have. God's blessed them. That little sliver of land, uh, well, it's a little bit bigger than New Jersey. I'll have to check that out. I've heard that. But he's basically saying, uh, you know, in, in their mind, listen, to get home, we need weapons. It's wilderness. We need food. We need water. We need supplies. And you know what God did? He provided all that through the Persian Empire, through the treasury, through Cyrus the Great. They would have never been able to do that on their own. So, again, this picture is, is, is of provisions, and more so in the millennial kingdom. Now, what you see a lot here is water. And I guess I, if you've been really thirsty, and I've been really thirsty but not desert thirsty, just a, a sip of water is an amazing thing for a parched mouth. Here, they're being shown pictures of water and lushness in the desert. Now, Jesus came and he told us that he would offer us fountains of living water that would come out of our heart. It would overflow. And this was indicative of the Holy Spirit. So, again, it was, a, you know, even the disciples, the disciples asked a lot of questions of Jesus because, well, now are we going to strike the Romans? Well, now are we going to do this? What do you mean you're going to the cross? You're not going to the cross. And they argued with him. Jesus was trying to take the, the, everything that they understood, all the history of their people, and they're ready for one thing, and he's saying, but I've got to change direction. I have to die for the sins of mankind. And they didn't get it. And really, they didn't really get it really well until they were filled later on with the Holy Spirit. So, pretty neat stuff that happens here. I just want to add one more uh, scripture, Romans 8, starting with verse 28. You want to talk about being encouraged. And again, we look at, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about, I got things to do after I leave here. I did stuff before I came here. I have a busy day today. Joe is focused on Sunday, <laughs> right? God is focused on my future, right? You see what I'm saying? And this is what we do. Some of you have projects you got to do this week. You're like, oh, I hope he doesn't talk too long. I got to go home and work on this project. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but you're, you're, you're thinking about different things. God is looking at your future. He's looking at years ahead. He's looking at goals. He's looking at things that he has for you to do. Pretty exciting. Romans 8.28 says this, and a lot of Christians have it memorized. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We need purpose in life, folks. Even as Christians, some Christians meander through life. They just, they're just meandering because they're not God-focused. But God wants to give us purpose, his purposes, and they're always good. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now we're talking about stuff that, I don't know, maybe before he even created earth, that he already knew you. That's, that raises the hair on the back of your neck. Well, how did he know me all those years ago? Had he, he knew when you were going to be born. He knew who your parents were going to be, right? And he also knew that he was going to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you would have told me that at 22, I would have said, you're out of your mind. You're a kook. Because I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian. Look at me now. <laughs> so he always, he's always right. He always has the last word. Uh, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. So not only did he know that we were going to be born, but he knew that we were going to be justified by Christ because Christ was going to come and die for our sins. This is impressive and so small. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And we're going to talk about, uh, well, in 1 Corinthians 15, how eventually God is going to give us bodies that don't wear out like these bodies. And I'm sure a lot of you would be really happy about that. Uh, Verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And sometimes, listen, we we get into the slumps and someone's encouraging us and we're just not, not biting. We just can see this monster of a problem that we're dealing with. And then the Apostle Paul says, let me take you back before creation. Let me tell you about the plans that God has for you before you were even born. Let me tell you about the, the life that you're thinking you're living as a pagan. God is going to save you. And the, what Jesus did on the cross is going to all make sense at that point once you give your heart to the Lord. Maybe somebody will do that today. I don't know. God only knows that stuff. Last few verses, verse 21 Back to the courtroom. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them. And know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you're nothing. And your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. This is God speaking to the idols and the the false crutches and the false senses of security for salvation. I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name. He shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there was no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. For back to God's courtroom. It starts with the courtroom. It ends with the courtroom. And God is voir dire-ing. If you've ever been in a court or you're an attorney, to voir dire a witness is they go on the stand and the opposing attorney cross-examines them to see if they really are an expert, if they really have any expertise, if they are who they say they are. And God is voir You know what's amazing? Thousands of years later, we use a lot of the things in the Scripture, in jurisprudence, in medicine, in science, God was the the progenitor. He was the author of all this stuff. So 
he's basically saying, you know, you're making your little idols, you got your false religions. Um, so what happened before Cyrus? Who's going to come after Cyrus? Who's going to come after the person that comes after Cyrus? Did anybody know that this was going on? No, you were all caught flat-footed. I'm God. I'm the one who has all the answers. And any of you that are trying to rely on this stuff, it's, it's worthless. Let me say this with a caution. Some people will read this. I mean, I have a Hebrew concordance. I, have, I go into the history, the colloquialisms. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I would just say, if you, if you struggle with this, some of the wording is tough because we're going back thousands of years, different culture, different language. I would say use sparingly, like the New Living Translation or the Living Bible, because it is a paraphrase. Sometimes if you read that quickly, you can get a general idea of what's going on and then go back to something that's a direct translation. So it's all God's Word. It's the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic. Uh, but sometimes people word it. I'm, I'm almost like a paraphrase now where I'm, I'm giving you, you know, you read this, the New King James and you're like scratching your head. I'm giving you basically what's saying the setting, the historical context. So I would say if you really struggle as you try to read forward, Try one of those paraphrases, but don't put that much stock in it because it's somebody's opinion. So I just want to leave you with that. It can be a little difficult to get through. So God is basically saying here that the things that people choose to follow other than God are worthless. You know, religion is man-made. Religion is man's idea on how he can reach God. This all started in Babylon and even before that. To really get to God, God actually came down in the form of a man, sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. So that's really where it's at. Because there's so many religions in the world, there's like thousands of them, and it's kind of really not fair because they all have different standards. Some are easier, some are harder. Some you need an attorney to decipher through because they're so difficult. Their books are bigger than the Bible. Who has time to read all that, right? God's word is truth, it's simple, and it speaks about relationship. So God is saying all these other things, they're, they're useless. There was no man. They, I had no counselor. There was no answers. Nobody saw this happening. He said basically what they're trusting in is wind and confusion. Now, on a hot day, I like the wind, but I can't guess which way it's coming from. Sometimes it hits my face. Sometimes it goes this way and hits my arm. You can't see the wind. So, and wind changes direction. That's not certainly how you want to follow God. Certainly not confusion. You know, to, who wants to live in confusion? We want to live our lives with focus in everything that we do. Confusion is just confusing, and it's, it brings fear, it brings anxiety. So God is saying, just come to me. Just come to me. He desires to comfort his people, but he also desired to comfort those that weren't his people yet. He desired to bring many people into the fold. As we close, today compared to last Sunday seems a little harsher. But when you have a really dirty set of jeans, you put it in the washing machine, right? Um, sometimes things are gentle and soft. Sometimes things are more agitated, but still said with love. Those jeans get thrashed around. They get sprayed with hot water. That agitator, you know, amazing how nothing, gets, well, some things do get ripped in there. But when you take them out, they're a clean pair of jeans and it needed to happen. I'll give you another example. If sometimes God has to use things that, that have to shock the conscience and get our attention. 
if you walked into church today or one of you were going to sit down and I noticed there was a support on one of those pews that were loose and that if you sat down, you'd probably end up on your butt and break one of your vertebrae, I would probably say, don't sit there. And you might say, Pastor Joe yelled at me. But put it in context. I, I saved you from that, that horrible possibility. And this is what God is doing in his word. You know what I noticed as I was actually considering that? I sit, I'm, I'm in the back, I worship, I come to the front. I've never actually seen anybody come in here and go like this. <laughs> yeah, I guess you all trust the, the supports on the pews. So and I've never seen it once in 10 years since we've had the building. But that being said, <laughs> wouldn't you want God to get your attention? Jesus spoke about the, the narrow road that leads to everlasting life that few find it in the world because they don't want to find it. God reaches out to everyone. He says that there's a wide road that many take that leads to everlasting destruction. Again, wouldn't you want God to, to say some things that, that shock you to make you think to get you off that wide road that's leading to destruction? And that's what he's doing here. He's trying to destroy, to voir dire, to cross-examine the false things that people trust in that are not of him. There's only one God, the true God, right? And his idea is for us not to trust in false things and have false confidence in a false sense of security for salvation, but to trust in him, the one who brings true salvation. At the end of the day, at the end of our lives, we all want to be in a good place and we want to be there together. And that's what God wants too. So here he has set up a situation where we all have free will, so he's not going to force us to do anything, but he does try to get our attention. Why he uses preachers, I don't know. Angels would do a much better job than me, quite frankly. But we're all in this together, folks, and this is what the church is. And some of you may be here that haven't completely given your heart to the Lord and haven't trusted in him. And if you see some of this stuff as a little, a little spicy, need to consider it. Don't be driven away. Be driven to and question what you believe and question if you're really going to heaven or not and why you think you believe that and if it really holds water. So at the end of the day, we look at this at our deathbed. Uh, God wants to give us salvation and check it out. He wants to give it freely. We can't pay it back. We can't earn it. It's not through popularity. It's not through a public opinion and poll. It's through grace, and that's a good thing. So who are you going to trust? I know for me, I've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray the same thing for you. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.